0: From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. This week on Lit Up, I'm speaking with my great friend, Maeve Higgins, a comedian, writer, podcaster, actor, New York Times contributor, and the author of the new book, Tell Everyone on This Train, I Love Them. Though Maeve is known for her comedic voice, her work has definitely more and more been underpinned by all the things she's been learning about the greater world and how people move around it. Maeve is one of my oldest friends in New York and one of the only people who gets the weirdest parts of my sense of humor. As you'll hear, we can be a little cruel to each other, but it's only because it's underpinned by a great affection. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoy making fun of Maeve Higgins. Sometimes I forget that there are baddies because we surround ourselves with our friends Mm -hmm. and people like us
1: Mm -hmm. and we forget. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty, I keep you around to remind me. (laughs) (laughs) Of the Not conniving conniving yeah. types. Yeah, I think there she is. She looks just like one of us. She's like to get me. <laughs> Always. <laughs> um, I was trying to remember when we first met. It would have been fittingly at a at a book club and I think it would have been seven or eight years ago. You know, we were <laughs> twenty. <laughs> 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 I think it was probably then. I was trying to remember like when I moved to the States and that was my first bunch of friends was you and the girls from the book club. And most of us, many of us were Aussies in that book club and it's <laughs> now
0: not been disbanded, but because of the pandemic, so many of our members have moved all over the world.
1: Yeah. And and I feel like we've stayed friends, but the book club element has has faded and What we do now is we listen to your podcast and we, you know, privately trash books or enjoy books. (laughs) You mean we (laughs) privately trash you (laughs) and the conversations you have. (laughs) It's so funny to me that I did fall in with this bunch of Australian book lovers because, you know, Australians are not known for their intellect. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. I I remember teaching you different words and showing you which way to hold the book. And yeah, it really meant a lot to me that time. And look at you now, reading nonstop, pretending to read. and (laughs) I'm sweating in my sweater
0: because I don't know what to say. I'd never know a retort. The best way to communicate with Maeve is on text because it gives me who takes some time to come up with a witty response I'm like oh I'm on the subway it's not coming through
1: yeah and I have time to come up with a few emojis that make sense but your quick mind your text messages are so funny and brutal and like even I would just say this to the listener she's not good to me Angela's not good to me I was coming here for the interview and it's like I think the first one I've done about the book and Angela said, you know, do you want a little tea, you know, or coffee or do you should be comfortable? And I said, oh, yeah, I'll get whatever you're getting. Like, thank you. And you said, yeah, I'll put a few drops of THC in there, knowing that the first essay in my book is about the time that I accidentally got incredibly high by ingesting (laughs) THC. That's right. That's the kind of thing you do. Sneak attacks, references to past failures, like little humiliations here and there where you don't even know you've been stabbed and then you look down and you're bleeding. I undercut you every chance I have.
0: You do. (laughs) But I remembered when this happened to you. Tell us about being accidentally drugged by a very generous friend who only wanted the best for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was nothing, that's the thing, it wasn't anything to do with the person, gave me some candy that had been given to her. I said, oh, great, like, I love chocolate. (laughs) And then later that day, of course, I ate the entire box of chocolate for my lunch, you know, because that's a good choice and that's what you do when you're busy. And then I went out to run errands and you know un- unbeknownst to like pretty much everybody involved there was like high doses of um, THC of like w- it was weed candy and so I think I ate like 80 milligrams of it and the recommended dose is five milligrams for like a regular user I had never done that before so I, I, I ate so much that it had a psychedelic effect or it was a like I had taken effect.
0: Well, I wouldn't say that. I that's From reading I your essay, <laughs> it felt like
1: you t- were teetering on a break with reality. Yeah, certainly was. The railings around me were moving and the floor was moving. And yeah, I wasn't really in my body. I couldn't speak or anything. It was, yeah, it was sort of an extraordinary experience. And it was one that really frightened me. So I made it into kind of a funny story, but actually it was really frightening.
0: Well, I think that touches upon so much of your comedy too. It's often, or for many of us, it's the worst things that happen to us or the terrifying things that with a little bit of distance or it's a way for us to kind of take this horrible thing that's happened and make sense of it but also have a way to share it and the best way to have people Like forced to listen to you or want to is by making something funny. If you're in New York, you'll know this store called Paper Source, which is very kind of fancy, stationary card shop with paper everywhere. And that's where you had this total breakdown and your friend Emmy came to get you.
1: Yes, because I was in in Paper Source and it was like around Easter time because they just sell all just the cutest stuff, don't they? In there, like yes, p- paper card decorations, but also just like stuff that you would never need. So I, I remember I was looking at like little mechanical chicks that you, I guess, like you walk them across your desk or something, and I was just like, oh, and they 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 lit up, and I remember thinking like it'd be so funny to put one in my mouth and then like put that on Instagram, and then I started thinking oh, the woman knows, like the woman in in Paper Source, like the woman working there, like she knows that I'm going to do that and she's so mad at me. <laughs> and then I was like trying to put it down, but my arms are way too long or they felt way too, They my arms did not physically change, <laughs> but I felt like they were like unrolling like right across the store. And all of this was happening when I didn't realize I had, that I was getting really high. I just thought it was happening because... Well, what I put it together as is that I was having a nervous breakdown, <laughs> and I thought, "It's finally happened." I was like, "Oh yeah, that's it." It's you know, I had a feeling this is going to happen, and my mom always thought this is going to happen, and like it's happening, in Paper Source in Park The terrifying thing,
0: and I think if you're someone that's dealt with mental illness or there's that history in your family. Mm. I mean I definitely identified to reading this and going it's gonna it might happen one day maybe today's the day or if you've witnessed someone actually have a break with reality and know that that could happen to you too Mm -hmm. it's terrifying and how does that connect to with you being a creative person and having been a creative person for so long and I want to hear about your childhood and how that connects but also having a history of mental illness in the
1: family. Yeah, yeah, definitely because I I thought it was maybe just my family but like the more people that I meet that are also, you know, writers or performers, I think it's quite a commonly held belief the the same types of brains are likely to break that are the same types of brains that are likely to like form new connections and be creative basically so I don't know I, there was like a study before that was like oh psychopaths and comedians have a lot in common <laughs> like, I <don't> know. <laughs> but I don't mean psychopaths I mean the fragility that comes with having a brain that's like you know but then isn't Angela like isn't it everybody's brain is fragile like and everybody's mental health is fragile like that's I don't know that it's especially creatives or...
0: I do feel that writers or comedians or people that want to delve into their own Mm. psychology and history Mm -hmm. to go places and remember things that a lot of other people who are just getting on with things say to themselves, oh, I'm just not going to go there. Whereas I feel like it's the, the artist who tries to go there and sometimes that's what can lead to some type of instability
1: yeah that was definitely what I grew up thinking because my you know immediate parents and they were not in anything creative or artistic really and I I always got the impression that that was sort of like a danger zone and the people in my wider family who who were writers or who were creative were out there that was like not to be emulated. <laughs> in the park, like the public park of our family, they were like the scary sculptures. And then the rest of us were like the roundabout and, you know, like the fun, easy to understand. And so I always associated, particularly writing, with kind of a self-indulgence and a... um So that's why I think it took me a while to just accept well yeah but it's also like something that you just have to do. So I came to writing through like stand-up and performance and it took me a while to even say like I'm a writer. So then what was it like being
0: one of seven kids and where are you in that hierarchy but also when... The best one, the best, <laughs> yeah. of course. Well, we know you're definitely your mother's favorite. But what were what were the dynamics within the the pack of you? Because the mm-hmm. opening essay, I think it's maybe the first or second one, was the one that just floored me and had me in tears. And it's very much about if you have this incredible group of siblings, why do you need friends? You're such a precious friend to me, and you're such a good friend oh, Angela. it's the truth but um reading about being within such a beautiful warm family I can understand how precious that was
1: and how it kind of buffers you from the world I think it does and I I meet fewer and fewer people who have these big families. I think in the 1980s in Ireland, it was quite common to be, you know, one of five or like I was like one of seven eventually eight because we got a new sister when I was older. I think that it does give you a feeling that like you're not really an individual because also we were all so close in age and, you know, it's six girls and, and we all look exactly the same and we, ha- we have the same voices we all went to the same school and it was a small school. So we were all in the same room in the school. And then like we all shared the bedroom at home. You know, it was just a, a pack is a good word for us, actually. So you kind of feel like, well, I'm all set. Like I don't need anybody else because I have this gang around me and we're very supportive of one another and very in, in interested in each other's lives. And I remember once like my sister showing me a series of messages from me to her about what color nail polish she should be wearing. <laughs> I guess I just felt like I knew better than her about this one thing. <laughs> and she showed it to me because I denied that. You know, I said, no, I would never speak to you like that. And she was like, no, you think you're my you know, boss and mother. But anyway, so it's a lot. It's a lot. And it's also like, think about trying to keep up with your friends, right? Where's Angela working? Who's she dating? How's she feeling about this? What does she think about this like new TV series? Like there's like so much to know about your friends and you're living here and it's really hard to even arrange to meet up, let alone to like properly dig in. And then with your family, when there's like eight people that you literally are like, huh, I'm surprised. She never used to like kimchi. What's going on with her? You know, like the the most tiny, intimate changes. Like you've got this huge encyclopedia that you have to keep updating. So it's also like a time thing that I felt like I have all of these people whose lives I'm very involved in. Like, do I even have time for friends, relationships outside of this family? And I think the things that I realized are... That my friends don't know the same stories about life as my family does. Like, we all have the kind of same outlook and we put the same narrative on events, and we kind of, well, this means that, and that means that. And then I get to meet all these new people who have a whole different backstory and who see things completely differently. And then I get to trust them. And I would say, like, my female friendships have been like, a revelation to me in my 30s and also like as you know an immigrant to the US where you don't know anybody then you're forced to reach out and to kind of like seek out these friendships as well.
0: I mean your book is so much too about the immigrant experience coming to a new place there's an opportunity to collide with the types of people you wouldn't at home because you're in those kind of grooves of social lives that you've grown up with but you come from comedy but you've also pushed further to I think underpin your comedy with the facts about particularly America and immigration and things so you can have a really nuanced point of view Um, and you recently got a master's in international migration studies yeah I so I want to connect the dots between being that kid in a in a house, in a boisterous house, Mm -hmm. and kind of finding that voice. And then if there was a turning point of going, being funny is great, but I need to push myself more.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the funny part, I think, was, yeah, you know, hereditary. It's the way we all talk to each other in my family. It's quite competitive, jokey family. And I... Still maintain that two of my sisters are, they're just so naturally funny. And like, it's just not important to them to like be on a stage and like prove it to strangers again and again. They're just healthier in that way. (laughs) But they're so witty and yeah do you steal their jokes oh all <laughs> the time like and the way they look at things and yeah I'm very extractive with those two <laughs> girls probably three of them actually but I think that I still do think it's really important to be funny and I still think it's a, a really effective way to to communicate like and to tell stories and and like you were saying to kind of say something that happened to you that was scary but also in a way that like isn't going to scare people, you know. But I think the older I get and having moved here and the realization that like other people's lives are so different to mine and there's so many different worlds within this world, particularly here in New York City, you know, where one in three of us are immigrants as well. But I do think that we're living through, like, isn't it? We are living in a very historic time. And sometimes I think, oh, no, that's just like the human need to feel important. But then other times I'm like, no, what's happening in this moment is like extraordinary, you know. And so to face that and to just to try and understand that, which is, I think, such a worthwhile goal to try and, you know, what Hannah Arendt says, which is like stop and think what we are doing is so difficult it's more important to me than 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 comedy or storytelling or any you know so any way I can find to do that I'll try and do that whether it's you know going to college or whether it's like interviewing immigrants or whether it's like listening at comedy clubs to what like young comics are talking about any way that I can try and understand better just what is happening um I'll do it. While the pandemic
0: had when it had just started Mm. I remember hearing well knowing that you were about to go to Texas to San Antonio Mm. for a very particular conference what was that conference and I'm wondering how you metabolized what you saw there how you did that in the isolation of a pandemic and if Mm. two years out there's a a change perspective
1: I can't believe that was like two years ago, because it was that crazy time in early March 2020 when we were all hearing about and some things were getting cancelled. And this Border Security Expo run by the Department of Homeland Security was just still going ahead. And I was thinking like, surely they're going to cancel. Surely they're going to cancel. But they didn't. So I went down there. I think it was like second week in March. And it, it's basically um, a government and industry event, which already is like Alarm bells. So it's all of the businesses connected with border security. So there's, you know, drone companies, anti-drone companies, wall manufacturers, like huge samples of of different walls and different finishes. Like, oh, someone will definitely slip down from here or they'll get impaled up there. And a lot of um arms, obviously, and dog kennels, and and then in the conference center, you're just listening to different panels talking about keeping immigrants out i'm i'm absolutely like simplifying what it was it was a three-day event but that was fundamentally a border security expo and uh so you had people from customs and border patrol and ice just like discussing their work and one big thing that really struck me was they have a really hard time recruiting people and the customs and border patrol do and i remember they were saying like oh, I wish we could like go to colleges, but like the kids protest and oh, you can't be dealing with that. And they were like scared of university students like protesting them, which is crazy because they're like a $20 billion industry of armed men. It's really largely a male um, federal agency. And I just remember being like, that's so, that's so funny. Like you're scared of like a few students holding placards And certainly there was a couple of people protesting outside the convention center. And like, you know, I was there reporting on it, but I still felt kind of like a traitor. So I kind of came out and I was kind of like smiling at the protesters like, hey, I'm I'm with you. (laughs) You But I wasn't with them. I was just an observer. So at the same time that I was at that conference where, by the way, nobody was distancing or masking or anything. They were like sharing food and slapping each other on the back and... It was all very macho and there was like a couple of references to the coronavirus. Bear in mind, this is the Department of Homeland Security and they were like fixating on like what to do about like kids on the border instead of actually worrying about this virus that was coming to like do what it did, right? Kill 800,000 Americans and shut down the economy and who, it's not even over yet, we don't even know. And so I personally, I was like, okay, this government doesn't know what it's doing like this is so scary to me <laughs> to see the way they're behaving here in texas while i also know that other you know their colleagues in new york are like terrified and wearing hazmat suits this makes no sense to me um so i covered the the conference and then i within two days i, I had flown back to ireland <laughs> despite like living here and being devoted to New York i was like goodbye <laughs> i don't know what the us government's going to do here but i don't think it's going to be appropriate oh my gosh yeah
0: what a! I t- i i mean i was also surprised in the book to read that i mean it's such a complicated issue border security but that um i think you said that oh uh, i'll get this right can you do my accent too oh if my you're going to be reading no, from I cannot. <laughs> a surprising Fact in the book that you cite is that I think the border industry gave two times more to the Biden campaign than it had to the Trump campaign.
1: The fact is, like, since 2001, every, um, you know, Democratic or Republican, everyone has funded, given more and more billions of dollars to detention and deportation. And famously, Obama deported more people than the previous two Republican presidents put together. I don't think it's like a Republican problem, honestly. I think it's an American problem, this rejection and this cruelty towards immigrants. I think just a lot of people started paying attention when Trump was in office because he did such loud, horrifying things. But I think that we don't fully grasp like how brutal the regime against migrants is and has been I mean it wasn't always as bad on the southern border as like the time that I've spent there because there used to just be kind of circular migration right like people would come from Mexico and maybe from further down in South America and work in the U.S. and kind of just go back and forth it was seasonal work and it wasn't perfect but it was certainly better than now where you kind of get trapped like it is kind of like insane that There's 11 million undocumented people in the US. That's so many. And it's like so many families who have this fear. And it's really not fair because I was undocumented. When I first came here, I was a teenager. I lived here for a year and worked as a nanny when I was 17. I did not
0: know that. Yeah.
1: And you came in knowing that you were going to outstay the three months. Which is how most people become undocumented you know there's this kind of idea that like people sneak across the border no most of us fly in and then we just stay <laughs> and loads of us are white and loads of us are european but of course we don't come into the same level of police contact um, or immigration control contact because we're white so it's just a whole other experience than a brown or a black person so Now, when I think about it, I just feel really suspicious. I'm like, okay, what what good does it do to America for America to have like 11 million undocumented people? There's been so many times legislation was like almost passed, but it never quite got there. And like the part of me that thinks the worst is, well, it's really useful to have all these millions of undocumented people because they will work whatever you tell them to work. And they will be this workforce that like you can point to other workers and say, okay, well, if you don't do it, they're going to do it. And it enables almost an underclass right. of
0: people who don't have the right to unionize or to yeah, call to out their bosses
1: or any of these things. Right. It's just that the fact remains that, you know, America is a country that does that. It's really one of the only like big countries in the West that I can think of that, that like has this huge group of people that they're kind of happy to just let them, you know, live without rights. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't (laughs) have an answer. Uh, There isn't an answer really. And I think that was the cool part of it. And of course I'm lucky because I get to intellectualize this stuff. I don't have to live through it or see my dad living through it or, you know, experience it. I'm very lucky in that way. But I think I at least get to answer, you know, to ask these questions and to get like some kind of answers or like look to history or like look to lived experiences to try and like get some more understanding of it because like so many of us I just kind of like understand America to be one thing and and to me it's played out that way it's been a real it's been a land of opportunity it just has like I got to come here and live here and have this amazing career that I could not have anywhere else I got to make these incredible friends they were all drawn to New York for the same reasons I was and so for me, America has been wonderful. And then in, in other, you know, I have to ask, well, like if I'm living here and paying tax here and buying into this, like I need to be responsible, I need to understand like what it is that I'm doing and where I'm living. So that's kind of what a lot of my writing is about. And it does sound pretty serious and sad and your little face is <laughs> quite sad. <laughs> But it's a privilege, right? Like that we get to even Definitely. wrestle with this stuff.
0: And the fact that it's, there was an opportunity for, for me, I won the green card lottery to come here yeah. without any friction yeah, at all. But not even that, once you're here, there's no barriers to entry to anything. I was so fortunate. Um, yeah. And, you know, we we also have a story of like working hard and, you know, sure, sure. Yeah to a point but being white and assimilating to the dominant culture so easily or not was is obviously a huge part of of being able to tap into the American dream so easily
1: yeah it certainly is yeah and and to you know I, I do think that like you don't have to be a writer or um anything to just want to know more and to want to like understand something past your own experience. But I do feel like like the older I get and like the harder life kind of gets, <laughs> the the more I'm allowed to understand it. And like the more I'm I'm capable of asking better questions and you know, knowing where to look for answers. And just I think it's gonna be good to be old, honestly. Like, can you imagine how much like knowledge and understanding we'll have accumulated if we keep going this way. Yes. And I think to that point though, we have to
0: look to our elders and want to hear from them far more because there's so much knowledge, right? Like I was just thinking, I was like, Oh, mom could come and live with us here. I I kind of like the idea of multi-generational household. All of a sudden they do have so much to share with us. Um, but, as, you know, as people who've left home, we disconnect ourselves from that family structure that, yeah. that
1: gives us access to far, like, elderly people. I I mean, they do this comedy show every Monday, and Joe Firestone, my co-host, so it's me, Joe, Anna Parna, and Aparna, and Anshirla, and Joe started to do a, a comedy class with Jewish senior citizens. That's right! And, <laughs> this was actually just like pre-pandemic and she would just like go to their, I guess like a senior citizen center. And then the pandemic hit, so she started doing it online and they've been doing it now for two years. And some of them are like elderly, like 90 years old. Um, And, you know, it became a special on Peacock and you can, so like you can actually watch this special now if you wanted. But like to hear the old people doing stand-up comedy, hear their perspective like and it's not like oh they're so wise it's just a different perspective and it's more knowledge about things I don't know about hearing them was just such a blast like I sat in in her class and I did a workshop and I they've come and performed in our show and stuff it's just been the coolest thing ever
0: I love that yeah
1: yeah well, wait, I want to I want to kind of segue
0: and I want to hear more because I didn't know this about you that you had this period where you found live theater and watching movies and things preposterous and almost like oh, actually hy- hysterical like the true sense of hysteria of believing, like of being in a place where people are acting out and you just found it preposterous.
1: What what happened and how did you cure yourself? I actually, I think maybe I had like reached a saturation point or something because I started to do stand-up comedy when I was like 24 and then probably at around like 34 or 35 or something, I was living here and I started to not really be able to go to shows. And first I just thought it was like, oh, I've overdone it. Like I remember like a, a woman I know who I really love and respect her work, another friend said, oh, let's go and see her show. And I was like, I I don't think I can. Like, I'm afraid I'll start, like, I'll start laughing. And it felt like insane to me that people pay money to go and sit quietly, like in silence, um, maybe with some laughs or whatever, but like, and watch someone else pretend to have emotions on stage. And it's not like, it was a bad play or I was like laughing at how at their acting I just found it so silly that like that I started giggling and I thought oh my god like that poor actress hears me and she was like weeping or acting or pretending whatever to weep and um (laughs) and I couldn't stop laughing and it was a bad it was bad and so I just stopped I said I can't handle performance even like watching acting on TV or in movies I was like there's a cameraman right there like this is so inauthentic <laughs> like I don't know what I was but since then and I'm so lucky that this happened, two of my friends like wrote a movie for me to be the lead in the movie and you know it was like a proper comedy horror feature film and so of course I said yes, like I'd love to do that there's it's very hard to get that kind of opportunity and I think by doing that movie and and seeing like how first of all like how hard it is to make a movie how many different people are involved how collaborative it is like how like all these different people have to be talented in all these different ways to make this incredibly silly and lovable like end film that I I kind of I think what it was, was, Angela, like, I didn't respect it. I didn't respect what people were doing. And, and then I started to, like, respect it, to, like, understand and respect it more. But, yeah, I certainly didn't advertise the fact that, like, I couldn't handle <laughs> watching <laughs> my profession, like, you know, acting, performance. I just, I felt so deeply mortified for all of us.
0: I wonder if there's something in our like 30s or some moment that happens I feel like I got disillusioned with everything Mm. for a period like I didn't want to read anything I thought like maybe it's when the realities of life dawn on you and you have that kind of petulant teenager moment of like discovering like how dark the world really is you know those moments as a teenager when you're confused by the world but also arrogant thinking you know so much. Yeah, but as a as a grown up you also realize that the joy of life is having to let go and let the beauty take take over, let your imagination go so you can deal with the with the realities of life or even just the knowledge of what human beings do to each other. And like imagination is part of how we cope. Mm. I don't know. I just feel like I went through a very serious few years where I didn't have a very good sense of humor. Yeah. And I don't think you were very funny during that period either. (laughs) (laughs) I'm (laughs) kidding. (laughs) But I wonder
1: if that resonates at all. It does. It really does. And like, it's that, you know, it's unbearable to be around people like that, you know, because everybody's life is difficult to to some degree but like to that person it feels very difficult like so to kind of say like I'm you know I'm taking it more seriously than you are and like I deserve a prize for that is so ludicrous to me and I would say like having coming out the other end of it now I'm so impressed by like someone who can create a good distraction I love them.
0: <laughs> oh, my gosh. We've talked too The much. woman knows how to talk. No, no, I feel
1: like we've barely scratched the surface, but that's okay. Yeah, I was just delighted to see you. Me too. And, I, you know, I'm so excited for you to read this book. <laughs> I, it I think you're going to enjoy it so when you do. So I don't even
0: think I've mentioned the title of your book, Mae. So I'm going to ask you, One last question. The title of your book is Mm -hmm. Tell Everyone on This Train, I Love Them, which when I saw the cover and I just, it's something that you would think and feel because I I know you Mm -hmm. so much. And I just, I thought, oh, I think May feels that on the train all the time because that's the type of person person she is. Uh, But there's, Uh, You reveal in the book that the title has a bit much deeper layer to that. And I'm hoping you can tell us about it.
1: Yeah, I I think it is both of those things. Because I think that, you know, living in a city where we're all so tightly packed in. And I write about the subway and I write about the subway in relation to like immigrants. The actual words come from a very tragic thing that happened. Um, But out of that grew this really profound statement I think which was I don't know if you remember but there well you've read it but in 2017 there was a horrible attack on the train in Portland in Oregon where there was a kind of a white supremacist who was about to attack he was yelling at and about to attack two young girls on the train and um, three men stepped in to you know try and reason with him and try and calm him down but he stabbed three men and two of them died, actually. One survived, thank goodness. But one of the men he killed, he was uh, this 23-year-old. His name is Talitian Ridden Namkai Meche. And um, one of the witnesses and one of the people who was with him as he died of his wounds uh, reported that his final words were, tell everybody on this train that I love them. And this kind of ricocheted around the world when it happened because I suppose it was this terrible... Terrible thing that happened, but there was a, such an unexpected sentiment that came from it. Um and I remember reading those words in a few different places and sort of finding them like unbelievable that like a dying person after this violence would come up with something so profound. And also, I feel like he, that he meant it. Like if you're ever going to mean something, it would be in that moment. Um so it just really stuck with me and with a lot of people too because when I um gave the book this title a lot of people were like oh my goodness that's what that young man on the train said um so I also held on to it as kind of a little personal kind of creed to myself in the past few years to kind of as a way to just hold on to this feeling of like we're brothers and sisters no matter how like awful things get like we're kind of in this together um and that the kind of division that we've been feeling doesn't kind of overwhelm me you know they've been really useful for me as kind of this personal touchstone um and they really fit you know they helped to guide me when i was writing this book too yeah, it's, it's it's quite a profound um, statement that he made. And I, th- I just think it bears repeating and remembering. What lights you up? <gasps> <Whoa>. <gasps> so I have three nieces, three different siblings, and they're all six. And they've just learned to read, I think, late because of the pandemic. I feel like I could read when I was younger than that. But they are so... They're all very different to one another. They're these little girls and they are so interesting and full of, you know, they giggle a lot. Like it's true that little girls giggle so much. And that is like so cute to me. And they also all have um, very strange like tooth formations because I guess like (laughs) their teeth are at different stages of like falling out and growing in. And they all have these burning pink chubby cheeks and they are so cute and they ask me the strangest things um and definitely getting to spend time with them is yeah it's probably like my favorite thing in the world yeah
0: it's the best answer there is yeah thanks so much for listening to this conversation with Maeve Higgins Maeve now we can go and eat the box of chocolates I got for us enjoy Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar 23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. See you next time.